This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. I appreciated uh, last week that we ran a little long and you didn't seem to get too anxious. So um, that could happen again today, just a little warning. (laughs) To cover the whole history of Christianity and sex and Judaism and sex in about two weeks, a little tough. When I was pastoring a church in um, California one summer in August, I decided to spend the whole month of August talking about sex because it's usually downtime in the life of the church and people seem to come if that's the subject. (laughs) Now, uh, near the end of my greeting about the second Sunday, a gentleman came through the line, he shook my hand and he he leaned in toward me a little bit and and he said, Pastor, I want to tell you something. My wife and I always have prayer before sex. And I'm like, hmm. And he says, "Uh, I think it's really kept our marriage together for a long, long time. Do you want to know what the prayer is? Well, now, I look around the narthex to see if anybody's listening. um, But I'm curious, so of course, I say to him, sure. I I want to know what the prayer is. So here here it is. He says, Lord... For what we are about to receive, make us truly thankful. (laughs) Now, I love that. You know, but the context for me was grandfather used to say that prayer over grace at Thanksgiving, you know. (laughs) And uh, so that got a little confusing for me at first. Um, but grandmother, who was raised Victorian, which was, you know, you put up with sex for procreation, but you don't like it, would never have had sex on the dining table. I'm absolutely sure. <laughs> Lord, for what we are about to receive, make us truly thankful. Well, the more I thought about his comment, the more I loved it. It captures the very soul of good, healthy sexuality. It captures the line in our book of discipline for the United Methodist denomination, which reads, we affirm sexuality as God's good gift to all persons. We call everyone to responsible stewardship of this good gift. What do United Methodists believe about sex? We believe that sex is sacred. We believe that sex is also to be used responsibly. Now, sometimes this gracious thankfulness, Lord, for what we are about to receive, make us thankful, comes easy, right? And I'm sure that uh, maybe some of you, but you know, at least in movies, people often express their thanks during sex gratefully, and it's usually, oh my God. <laughs> But sometimes sex is so ordinary and awkward and uncomfortable, being reminded about gratitude is probably a good thing. So here's the way I look at it. We can compare sex to a good meal. Sometimes a meal I cook is a gourmet dinner. You know, it looks good, it's over the top, tasty and wonderful. Now sometimes when I've had a busy week, 
I'm tired or distracted or we just don't have the right ingredients in the house, the meal is less than perfect, a little overcooked, mushy, poorly seasoned. We still say grace, and by the end of the meal, we are usually still satisfied. Ordinary people have ordinary sex, as well as over-the-top, prayerful, expletive sex. So how do we define good sex? Some of my favorite definitions over the years. Sex is an exchange of gratitude and pleasure. Sexual intimacy is sacred. Rabbinical law, by the way, requires that rabbis have sex on the Sabbath in order to keep it sacred. Now, I'm not sure if that keeps the Sabbath sacred or the sex sacred, but either way, <laughs> either way, it works. I like sex defined as mutual pleasuring because that takes all that other stuff out of it, the gunk about control or performance. You know, if you're into sexual performance, you're on the wrong stage, right? Why do we ever put that word in there? In fact, one of the things that'll kill sex is to watch yourself while you're doing it, right? It's called spectatoring it. It's really a problem. Yeah, so do it while you're doing it, but don't watch yourself like you're from a distance on it. Well, my parishioner and his, and his wife found a way to keep their egos out of the bedroom. Now, that's really important. And you, and, you know, no partner's responsible for the orgasm of the other partner. We have to, well, anyway, I'm going into my other role there to talk about that. But I'm thankful for this man's story so that we could talk about this today. Now, this is the second in my two-part series on Judeo-Christian sexuality. Last week, we took a whirlwind tour through 5,000 years of sexual mandates, laws, taboos, and moral codes. If you want me to send you that one by email, just write your, e write your email down for me today, and I'll send it over to you. We examined last week outdated, selective, and harmful definitions of sex, referred to sadly as biblical sex. Although we did find out that biblical sex was also, what, polygamy is biblical sex. There's a lot of rules in the Bible about what we are to do, and mandates and laws. How many of you washed feet this week? Someone else's feet. Oh, your own, yeah, but someone else's feet, that'd be great if you did. I mean, right, that's what Jesus says you are to do. That's a biblical mandate. Interesting which ones we pick and which ones we ignore. Well, and we talked about uh, chief, the chief operating value still in the church is that sex can only be blessed within heterosexual marriage with the intent of procreation. And some of you were here last week, but you know we can think about this, so if you don't mind, you can pass or raise the hand how many of you have had sex that did not lead to procreation. Okay. So most of us have had that experience, but we're still clinging to an old ethic. The procreation mandate, I realize so I'm thinking about that this, this week. You know why people like it and are hanging on to it for 5,000 years, like dogs to pant legs, is because it is so darn simple. It just doesn't complicate things. 
It's also damaging and terrible. But I can understand that if you want something spelled out in a simple way, that's where you would stay. Sex, then, is good if sperm meets egg. It's bad if sperm is spilled. So sperm is spilled with masturbation or male homosexual behavior, uh, and worse, or barrier behavior, or anything non-procreative. It's even worse if sperm is not involved at all, which would be lesbian sexual behavior. Now, this ethic, which guided evangelical Christians in their crusade against sexual diversity, makes decision-making so easy, but it also leaves patriarchy the power to set and control sexual behavior. And it's not working for anyone. We are now in a sex-saturated culture. Do I have to explain that, really? I mean, how many of you are bumping into things on Google you didn't mean to bump into? I'm sending Lois pictures of mating animals, and I can't tell you what else I saw there that I wasn't really intending to see. <laughs> My husband recently, you know, wants to look after his health, and uh, so he decides to order, I don't know, maybe a kid was selling magazines at school or something. Anyway, he orders Men's Health magazine which has nothing in it but sex and advertising. And last month's feature, first article was all about dick pic. And I thought, I don't even, oh yeah, I do know what that is, ooh. Well, it's when and where and how to send your lover a picture of it. <laughs> now last week I got brave and I said, clitoris and penis both in the same sermon. I know that was like over the top. But when and how to send a picture. Now, what scared me is that it had very little warning in it about the illegality of this behavior. Nobody says anything about this. So this is Cosmopolitan's counterpart in the men's world. Good heavens, our old church ethics are not in any way relevant to the 40-something bodybuilding male readers of Melon's Health. Our old ethics don't meet the teens in our communities in places where they are struggling. Most of them have learned sex by watching pornography, average age of first viewing, 11. So they start out with a really skewed perspective on what their bodies should look like and what they should do with them. These old ethics in church aren't doing anything for single people. They're not helping non-binary people precisely because we are all differently made. According to the psalmist, we are, this would be a click, fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, did we get that one up there? There we are. Oh, I, I don't know where I'm headed, so it's fine. Uh, no, it's back away. It's fearfully and wonderfully there we are. Yay. To have any moral voice now or in the future, we cannot be so limited by an old sexual worldview, nor can we clobber people with the Bible. We need to shape instead powerfully new sexual ethics. And if you haven't had a chance, you can go to the World Health Organization's website. I encourage that you do go to that website and look up sexual rights. Very beautiful long statement. 
We need sexual ethics grounded and rooted in love. If anything is coming out of our fight over the inclusion or exclusion of LGBT people in all aspects of life and ministry, it is that we can no longer be content with simplistic and outdated rubrics. We have to define and redefine sexual behavior and gender roles for the age in which we live. It is not the first time we've had to protest our way out of exclusion and into love and grace. Well, the United Methodist Church was reformed and reformed again, as we talk about today in Pentecost, the church being reformed. We had to reform the church starting 1956. What happened then? Uh, 1956, in the United Methodist Church, we began ordaining women. In the 1960s and 70s, the church also refused to ordain divorced clergy uh, who were candidates for ministry, and those who divorced during their ministries were demoted. It's not that long ago, folks. We no longer do that, even though the Bible clearly says we read that text last week that Jesus advised against divorce. The church has finally become clearer about the difference between healthy sexuality and sexual abuse, but it comes after years of allowing men in power to harm others. We have additionally damaged victims of clergy sexual abuse by minimizing, denying, and covering up perpetrators in the church. Ironically, our first founding father, John Wesley, was, this is him, the bobble doll, um, was actually, he did so many good things, I could preach a lot about that, but in this case, he excommunicated a woman in his parish because he made sexual, well, at least romantic advances toward her. And when she married someone else, he refused to serve her communion. Petty, it, at least, you know. Her father, who got so upset with it, roused the community, and that is what sent John Wesley back to England on the next boat. So there's actually a headline story on one of our national United Methodist websites, and it, it's, I, I clicked it because it said this, need love advice? Don't ask John Wesley. <laughs> We've had to rethink and reform the church throughout history. Now, the language in our book of discipline, which has never changed, says that sex is a good gift from God, right? We put that up. And that we should use it responsibly. It's great. The problem is it's a little vague for the fullness of what we have to understand with sexual ethics. So, in 1976, what happened in the church? here some of you this is when a group of elected clergy and laity at a general conference meeting decided to add a few more clarifying sentences and those sentences said homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching and clergy are to be faithful in marriage and celibate 
in singleness. 1976. So what was going on in 1976 that they would add this? People all over the world join hands, get on the love train. Moss is back there dancing. Love train, right? This, this is, are you going to San Francisco with the flower in your hair? This is the 60s. This is the love moment. This is Woodstock in the East, San Francisco, drugs and sex in the West. The book Open Marriage was being read and espoused by clergy and infidelity was running like crazy among clergy as well as everybody else was joining. Uh, more open marriages were happening. And all of a sudden, we're in the middle of a love revolution. We are uh, seeing also liberation for women in the form of birth control. Yes. So now women are going to get carried away, right? Women's sexual liberation. The birth control pill was approved in 1960, but not really uh, legal at the federal level until 1972, just four years before the Methodists decided they better add something to the Book of Discipline. So with women asserting their right to sexual liberation, to lesbian sex, to bodily autonomy, and calling out abuse and violence for what it was, women were rising. Norms and values long perceived to be Christian American values were being threatened, and church leaders were unprepared for this generation of liberated lovers. And they, do, they did, at that point, what every family does when it's under siege and feels threat. Close ranks, establish rigid laws, increase shame, and hope for the best. <laughs> they inserted restrictive language into the Book of Discipline and tried to rejoin a conversation about sexuality that it hadn't been in to begin with. We haven't been good at talking about it for 5,000 years, so why did we think that in the middle of the sexual revolution we could suddenly be ethically able um, and capable of talking about sex. We're not good at it still. Many of us have been trying to get rid of that language ever since. And despite our even more exclusionary votes in February at a general meeting, at annual conference meetings this week, from Maine to Texas, we ordained openly gay, lesbian, and transgendered candidates to ministry. There is a church in protest inside the church that voted. The vote was very close. We will get this right or I believe we will not have any influence on future generations. If we don't get this right, we won't have a church for future generations. The church, I've often said, is already in peril because of sexual abuse that was ignored or covered up. But if we add sexual abuse to sexual exclusion, we don't have a future church. We have to get this right. Well, we need something that helps people in our world of consumer sex, a billion-dollar porn industry, Fifty Shades of Grey hookups, 
sexual exploitation. Years ago, I heard a theologian, Ted Sample, say people are no longer willing to check their sexuality at the door when they come into church. How could they? The body and spirit are one. I read a study about monks who meditate, and this is really wonderful. This is the brain picture, yeah. Um, they, what they found is they took these expert meditating monks and they put them into MRI machines. And then they scanned them when they were in deep, deep medication. And the part of their brains that lit up was the orgasmic centers in the brain. <laughs> deep spiritual prayer and communion with God and orgasm all light up in the same place in the brain. The people who practice tantric sex have been telling us this for years. Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh writes about sexual communion, describing it this way, a ritual performed in mindfulness with great respect, love, and care. Sex you can love with is sex that desires only the best for the other person. Jesus said, the two shall become one, and by this we know the amazing bonding power of sexuality. Now, I'm going to back you up because I have another brain fact. Sex releases oxytocin in the brain, and uh, we have a birth, uh, a gynecologist with us. So where is oxytocin at birth? It's in the uterus, and it's, it come, the baby comes out with some of it on the head of the baby, as I understand that. And so no wonder the people are bonded right away, because oxytocin is also considered to be the bonding chemical between human beings. Not sweet. So, you know, here's the take home, too. If we're talking about heterosex, you, women, when they cuddle, release bonding chemicals. You can do it with your pet, right, when you stare in the pet's eyes. It actually... It lights up oxytocin in the pet, too. I love that. But anyway, so um, it's funny that St. Paul said husbands and wives should not be apart from each other for very long, even for prayer and fasting. And that's so curious to me. He didn't know this yet, right? He didn't know about oxytocin, but there it is, right? So the more often you're together, the more often the oxytocin is happening. Oh. But the takeaway is, so women have oxytocin at cuddling, uh, but men have a little less during cuddling. And so, but when it really goes off for men, it's during orgasm, right? This makes so much sense. So the woman is like cuddled up and she's like, oh, yawning and sleepy and feeling so closely connected. And the guy's like, huh? <laughs> I don't feel that close yet, right? Yeah. Well, there's so many things in the brain that, uh, that it does. You know, it can uh, raise your immune system, by the way, uh, increase your immune system. So, like, you feel a cold coming on, you can go echinacea or sex. Echinacea? <laughs> sex. You know. It also improves all those things that antidepressants improve. You know, it uh, helps with serotonin in the brain, it helps prevent uh, depression. It's also releasing opiates, which are, um, you know, natural painkillers. So the old excuse, I have a headache, you know, might want to rethink that. 
Um, and if you have older sex, I wrote an article for AARP magazine about sex once, you know, on 50 shades of gray. And I was saying, if you're over 50, you don't need to add pain. You've got pain, right? <laughs> so another word for singles and older lovers. Solo sex is lovely sex, too. And it can flood the brain with all these things, with opioids, uh, the immune system, the antidepressant. Uh, self-loving and self-pleasuring is pretty good safe sex. And for older couples or folks with sexual disabilities, side-by-side -side orgasms still provide these bonding experiences. Sensuality is possible for everyone across the lifespan. A lovely man came to me in his 80s and wanted to know what kind of lubrication he and his wife could use because every Saturday morning they had sex for their whole marriage. And she was getting a little dry and they wanted to do something about that, you know. It was easy, you know, gave them a couple of names of products and, and they were back on track. Now while scholars are still debating whether or not Jesus had a full-on sexual relationship, it's clear that he honored sexual touch. Our foot-washing master affirmed bodily massage. Now, I hadn't really heard it until today. I love the scripture, because you hear something new every time you hear it. That's why you have to stay in scripture a lot, right? There's so many wonderful things to read there. That Jesus was naked. You notice that? I didn't notice that. I mean, he had a towel around his waist. But I have a curious mind, so I don't know. But there he is, washing his disciples' feet. He also received that touch from the woman who we're supposed to talk about every time we talk about biblical people, right? The woman who offered him that anointing and sensual touch. We know that he affirmed bodily touch. He went to a spa when he needed a little uh, you know, tender treatment. He received physical affection, served people with this washing of feet. Matthew Fox was kicked out of the Catholic pulpit for many things, but one of the reasons was that he challenged Christians to foster passionate, sensual life. This is so unlike what pornography promotes, which is rote, performance-driven, main, orgasmic goal, biggest, fastest, greatest orgasms in the world. Jesus instead is looking for a sensual life to combine body and spirit. He writes, uh, this is Matthew Fox, a sensual spirituality praises the gift of one's senses, fingers and eyes, ears, olfactory nerves, tongue and imagination, nerves and brain waves, and the gift giver. Therein, as with any adult gift, lies the ultimate thank you, holy communion, and prayer. Sex as prayer. You know, at almost every wedding you went to, at least in the 70s, if I speak with the tongue of human and angel, but do not have love, I am nothing. Sensuality is the body's way to express love. Psychologists call love attachment. Biblical scholars call it agape. 
It is the wish for the well-being of the other. And this is what good, healthy sex is when it is mutual, agreed upon, safe, respectful. We need to avoid all those other things, harmful practices, obsessions, addictions, abuse. Unwanted touch is not sensual or loving. Obligation sex is degrading to the giver and the recipient. I asked uh, college students when they're thinking about um, sexual behavior, does it increase your self-esteem or does it increase your shame? Just as a plumb line. It helps them to feel more lovely and loved. Or does it help them to be inadequate and embarrassed? Does it foster love through thick and thin? Or does it only hold up for the average 13 minutes it takes from arousal to orgasm? Well, you gotta multiply that as the years go up, but. <laughs> Sex can't do the job of love. So love first, with the goal of more love, long-lasting love, life-enhancing love. Best lovers are willing students, courageous partners, aware of their own bodies, and willing to use their voices and say what they don't want, and even harder sometimes, to ask for what they do. It would be good for all of us to create and reflect on our own personal sexual ethic, to consider what is sex we love with. So I want to end this sermon with a prayer and an affirmation. The prayer is, <laughs> that's all right. That's all right, those are good too. Oh, well we just enjoy them, isn't that great? Sure, and then come to the swans. That's great. This is a picture that my um, husband's sister's husband takes, uh, took. And these are trumpeter swans. They made for life. And that's just such a gorgeous picture. My prayer for any and all of you who have been harmed by sexual abuse, by rape or incest or harassment or manipulation, you deserved so much more. And I know that finding your way to healthy, loving sensuality and sexuality and sexual pleasure can be difficult. I also want to affirm those of you who have, by your loving commitment and patient sensual love, helped a survivor to regain their self-worth in your safe embrace. I want to infer, affirm that sexuality takes a lifespan to figure out and that Ordinary sex is nothing like the media and pornography industry are trying to convince you that it is. Sometimes it's a gourmet meal, and sometimes it's tuna casserole. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs>
Stay focused on love and the expression of loving sensuality and sexuality, and you're on pretty good ground. Be respectful and get verbal consent every time at every move with every partner. Spend more time talking about how much you love each other than getting to orgasm. It will actually improve the orgasm. And we are full circle now, back to the man who for 40 years with his wife said grace before sex. Will you say his words with me? Lord, for what we are about to receive, make us truly thankful. You know, have prayer before sex, during sex, after sex. Give it a try and see what happens. Amen.